And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, J. David Weeder, but please call me Dave. This is the show all about Marvel Comics' blind attorney by day and sensory-enhanced superhero by night, Daredevil. This week, we begin the second half of Daredevil Yellow by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale, but first, I kind of have to talk a little bit about Daredevil Season 2. This will be spoiler-free, so you do not have to turn off your MP3 player. This is a safe zone. In a word, phenomenal. John Bernthal's Punisher is a standout and he totally crushes the role, but he never really upstages our title hero. And this time around, Charlie Cox is far more comfortable as Matt Murdock and Daredevil. The cast returns and they all seem to embrace their respective roles and I love that. There is a strong sense of continuity that is masterful. Even side characters from the first season get new moments to shine, making these two seasons feel completely organic, which is a benefit over, say, a movie franchise with standalone sequels. The Daredevil costume does get a tweak, primarily on the helmet front, which is in the trailers, in the promotional art, but it works so much better on the screen than the one we saw in episode 13 of season 1. More so, this season managed to feel like it was using a bigger palette than the first season. We saw more colors and bigger, bolder backdrops. The look is very similar to season one, but a bit more fleshed out. Oh, and the action scenes. They're more brutal than season one, with a particular fight scene that takes season one's hallway fight to the next level. My one criticism is Elektra. Now, Elodie Young was fantastic in her role, as is the whole cast. There simply isn't a bad performance in the lot. But Elektra felt shortchanged, in my opinion, by omitting pieces of her character that are really important. To be fair, what we did get was a compelling character with a lot of meat on the proverbial bones, and she was named Elektra and looked like Elektra, but with the soul of the character reduced. I genuinely liked what we got in the character, but it didn't quite hit certain spots that needed to be hit. It's much like Heath Ledger's Joker. Great performance, great character, but not a definitive interpretation from the comics. But after my binge, I am still itching for a third season, and I also really want to see the Punisher in his own series. Yes, Bernthal is that good. He may have caused manly tears with his performance. Overall, if you don't have Netflix, get it. Get it now and watch this amazing show that had moments that made me squeal out in joy. That did not sound right. So, Daredevil Yellow number four. Yeah, we should probably get down to that. Uh, Which we'll do right after this promo for the Paul Spataro and Dr. Bill show with special guest Scott Harold Gardner. Or if you want to be technical, back to the bins. Enjoy this promo for my fellow TTF members and I will be right back. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need mine, or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have mine, you have yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time. 
and then if you go out of that, it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It it really doesn't work well. So I checked. Right. Uh, I checked my uh, mm-hmm. well, my. Pre- it definitely billed build me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. The modern daredevil is writing letters to the recently killed Karen Page and remembering his early days as a costume crime fighter. Following the death of his father at the hand of the Fixer's enforcer, Slade, Matt Murdock became the superhero daredevil to bring the killers to justice. With Slade in prison, sitting on death row, Matt went about his life as a lawyer along with his partner Foggy Nelson and their secretary, Karen Page. The firm recently landed their first high-profile clients, the Fantastic Four, and at the same time, Matt is developing feelings for Karen and has, so far, been unaware that Foggy also has feelings. All of this is on the board as we take a look at Daredevil Yellow number 4, cover dated November 2001. The cover is, of course, by Tim Sale, and here we have Matt Murdock in the midst of lawyering, with Foggy sitting at the table behind him while outside the courthouse in the blue sky is a ghostly image of Daredevil. We see a little bit of a tonal shift here in the covers going forward. For one thing, the sky is a light blue, as is Daredevil within the color hold. With issue 1, we saw an exterior scene. Issue 2 was inside Fogwell's. Issue 3 had the outside of the Nelson and Murdoch offices, so we seem to be flip-flopping issue by issue, which would be a great theme, but it has one snag in issue 6, which of course we're going to get to. As to this cover, the courthouse colors are breathtaking, dark oak and brown, which makes this scene feel a bit more confined, almost claustrophobic compared to the open space of Fogwell's. My take is that Matt's adult life and those responsibilities that come with that are starting to become very real, and they're closing in on him, not suffocating him, but space is limited. This signals a change of priority from the more reckless youth to the controlled mature adult. I won't call it an end of innocence, because I think that would be melodramatic, though it would fit the issue, but more a transition. A realization, if you will, that the adult life of freedom that you picture as a child and the real deal are usually a bit different in action versus visualization. The best part of this cover, though, is the irony, and it's a little bit of a spoiler if you want to call it that. Matt never steps foot into a courtroom in this issue. And the story within the issue, in which Matt does not enter the courtroom, is entitled Never Lead With Your Left, written by Jeff Loeb, with art by Tim Sale, letters by Wes Abbott, and colors by Matt Hollingsworth. It is reprinted in the Daredevil Yellow Collection, which is a trade paperback or hardcover. It's on the Marvel app and Comixology to purchase in both trade and individual issues, and on Marvel Unlimited. Cracking open this cover, we find Daredevil in the middle of a heated battle with the Spider-Man foe Electro at Radio City Music Hall. Daredevil explains that he found Electro at the Fantastic Four's headquarters, the Baxter Building, and trailed the villain here to have a face-off amidst the Rockettes. Above the stage, the two clash until Daredevil uses his billy club to set off the building's sprinkler system, shorting Electro out and winning Daredevil the day, and the attention of the Rockettes, which seems like a good place to stop and discuss this bit of the comic. Last week, we saw the beginning of Daredevil number 2 play out at the beginning of the issue. This week, issue 4 completes that tale. For those that don't remember, for context, Daredevil number 2 began with Nelson and Murdoch getting a business call from the Fantastic Four themselves. This led to Matt going to the Baxter building only to find Electro raiding the Fantastic Four's files to sell their secrets to hostile nations. The bulk of last week's issue, Daredevil Yellow number 3, is set between these events. This issue picks up on the original issue's third act, omitting the unfortunate trip to space that Electro sent Daredevil on. No rockets to be seen here. The first thing that stands out about this 
this scene is Daredevil recognizing the fact that back in the day, costumed criminals rarely killed anyone. Of course, this comes by way of Matt framing that against Bullseye leaving Karen in a pool of blood. It's certainly commentary about the change in tones we've seen in the comic books from 1964 compared to 2001. Think about it, in that time you had the death of Elektra, Jean Grey's suicide, even the death of Superman. Not to mention the killing joke. It may also be Daredevil recognizing the in-story change in tone, the idea that this memory stems from a more innocent, naive time in his life. An innocence that will be gone by the end of the issue. Either way, here we have Electro, first introduced in a February 1964 story entitled The Man Called Electro from Amazing Spider-Man number 9. As a side note, I want to personally recommend Andrew Leyland's ongoing look at the Stanley and Steve Ditko era Spidey on Palace of Glittering Delights. If you're wondering where to find that show, look no further than right down the dial from this show on 2TrueFreaks.com. You can find those particular episodes under the title Walloping Web Snappers, and they are excellent. Now, Electro was Max Dillon, an electric lineman who got zapped by electricity in a freak accident and was able to generate and channel electrical currents. So he became a robber and a costumed criminal, as one does, of course. Now, on the surface, Electro is the first costume villain that Daredevil ever faced, so there's a bit of relevance there. But if you look deeper, there is more to this matchup. Last week, I mentioned the idea that Slade was somewhat the flip side of a coin to Jack. Both under the thumb of a criminal empire, both making damning choices based on their kids. As odd as it sounds, Electro is actually the flip side of a coin to Matt Murdock. I know it sounds odd, and you're wondering how so. Well, let me take you down the line to April 1997. There you'll find an issue of Amazing Spider-Man, issue 422, where there is a tale called Exposed Wiring that was written by Tom DeFalco. In this story, we learn a lot of Max Dillon's backstory. Dillon actually grew up with an abusive father who was an accountant, an inverse of Jack. As Jack was physical, this guy is mental. As far as their day-to-day life, what they do as a profession. Much like Maggie, except inverted, Max's father actually left when Max was eight, about the same age that Matt was when he made that fateful promise to Jack. That left Max with an overprotective mother who actually discouraged Max from having any real ambition. And Max ended up taking that to heart. That's right, Max was actually encouraged to not hit the books, just get by, play it safe. Max ended up becoming an electric lineman rather than the electrical engineer job that he had ambitions for. Regardless of his aptitude, this is where he ended up by choice. And that lack of ambition actually ended up imploding his marriage. This means Max is a picture of just how badly Matt could have ended up. Max did not hit the books. He lost his father instead of his mother, and when great abilities came his way, he jumped towards villainy. Matt is who he is because he was pushed and encouraged. Matt put in the effort despite the barriers, and he succeeded. Through that, it also gave him a grounded sense of right and wrong because of his chosen profession and law. Electro is a cautionary tale. It's a frightening, sad story. Had his mother just given him some support, he could have chosen a different career path, and he would never have been in a position to become a villain. This isn't just a fight with a villain. This is the angel and devil on everybody's shoulders, the two paths we could take, and in this case the roles are oddly reversed so you may never look at this matchup the same way again i know i won't to the actual depiction of the fight it looks gorgeous as you would expect from tim sale of course but matt hollingsworth basically makes this sequence into something more basically if sale hits the run to first base hollingsworth does the home run with the bases loaded and wins the game electro's green costume complete with its starfish mask 
so stylish, pops right off the page, and the electrical effects are rendered with such a pure yellow and white, it actually glows on the page. It's a dazzling rendition of this sequence, it really is, which kind of leads us to an odd offset of the color scheme toward the end of the issue. And as one would expect, Daredevil likes the attention of the Rockettes which kind of lends some credence to the idea that Matt's ego supports his choice to be Daredevil continuously. But there will be more electricity, literally and figuratively, as the issue continues, including a spark between Matt and Karen and, well, kind of another spark a little bit later. So it does play with that theme, even if the tone ends up being a little shaky. For now, let's look at the next segment of this issue and see what the aftermath of this fight holds. Back at the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, Foggy and Karen are working to figure out just how to represent the owl without knowing his real name. Karen happens to catch Daredevil swinging by the windows and swoons for just a moment, wondering if the man without fear lives nearby or who he just might be. As if on cue, Matt enters the offices and learns that Karen doesn't have a boyfriend, information that Foggy immediately takes advantage of by inviting Karen to go bowling. Matt invites himself along and Karen helps guide Matt to throw the ball down the lane, hitting only one pin before dropping into the gutter. Still, it is cause for celebration and Matt gains a big hug for the small feet, which is a good stopping point to talk about this segment. This week, I took a great while to just sit and think about Matt and Karen. Not just in the context of this story, but their whole relationship, from Daredevil number one to her death. I entertained the idea of a codependent relationship and realized that's not the case here. It's something different. These aren't people who can't find satisfaction away from each other. Matt continues to be Matt, Karen continues to be Karen, and they can survive apart, but they don't want to. This is a pair of people who are in love, deeply in love, and they constantly hit barriers. Are they dysfunctional? Oh yes, most certainly. But are they bad for each other? Really? No, not entirely. They they aren't completely compatible. That much I will say. Karen wants the house, the picket fence. Matt can't provide that. You know, let me say this. Matt won't provide that. One of the big reasons I like talking about these characters is just how freaking flawed they are. They don't always make the right choice, and sometimes they don't make a choice at all. Here in these early days that we see within Daredevil Yellow, they play the hide the feelings game. Neither wants to admit how they feel, and I'm not totally certain they know how they feel. So let me start there. In in the beginning, we have Matt, we have Karen, we have a little bit of Daredevil, a little bit of Foggy, stir, bake for a few years at 350 degrees, and you have one jacked up mixture. Karen likes Matt, Matt likes Karen, Foggy likes Karen, and somewhere in there are moments where Daredevil even catches Karen's eye. Matt doesn't want to get close to Karen. Sometimes it's because of his duties as Daredevil. Sometimes it's because, frankly, she's fixated on his blindness. And sometimes it's simply to stay out of Foggy's way. Likewise, Karen thinks Matt is ashamed of his blindness and will never court her because of that. Now, Foggy, in all reality, is a minor entity in this. Sure, he scores a few dates, he delays Matt a bit, but he was never really in the running to be Karen's suitor. So it really is between Matt and Karen and... Well, if you really want to be technical, Mike. Yep, Mike Murdoch. That was a prospect. As jacked up as it is to say, Karen could have ended up with Mike. You know, Matt's imaginary twin brother. Which in effect means that she would end up with Matt, who is pretending to be Mike. I hear you asking it. Where is this going? My point is... Up to a certain time, this was complicated, and intentionally so. This was the whole moonlighting, Mulder and Scully, will they, won't they type of thing. But then we get to issue 57, and what happens? Matt tells Karen that he is Daredevil. I mean, he lays it all out for her. The door is now wide open for this relationship. There's no secrets. There's no barriers. But it falls apart. Matt won't quit being Daredevil. Karen can't accept that and flees to Los Angeles, and it just falls apart. And slowly over time, Karen just vanishes completely from 
Matt's life for years. I mean, completely gone. Now, after a sort of mourning period where Matt is actually heartbroken, he does manage to move on with the Black Widow. Karen also moves on, just down a road of drug addiction and porn. You know, that whole thing. In the real world, relationships fizzle. I mean, they vanish, they fall apart, sometimes they implode, sometimes they detonate, and the people we were close to become strangers. It's such a weird phenomenon. You're intimate with this one person, then you pass them on the street years later, and they feel more distant than they did the day you first met them. Now, I say all of that to say this. During the week, as I thought about Matt and Karen, I had what alcoholics call a moment of clarity, thanks to a song. It happened to pop on. It's called Gravity by Sarah Bareilles, and it just randomly came on, and suddenly I got Matt and Karen. And I mean, I got it. I understood it in a way that I hadn't before. Let me play you a quick snippet of the song. I know this is a little bit odd, but I think it'll make my point a little bit clearer. Music can sometimes express things better than speaking, which is why it's music. Take a listen to this little clip. Something always brings me back to you takes too long No matter what I say or do I still feel you here till the moment I'm gone You hold me without touch You keep me this song is somebody who keeps basically being drawn into this emotional gravity pull with this other person. And the idea that these two, Matt and Karen, keep getting drawn to each other just haunted me. They aren't codependent, but they do have this emotional gravity field that keeps drawing them back together. The best example that I can think of is Daredevil 231, which is a chapter in the Born Again storyline. Karen, who is now drug addicted, thinks that she's going to die, and there's on the ground a needle full of heroin. And she's diving for it. She thinks, what the hell? Why not go out with a bang, right? And then Matt arrives, even after Karen sold his secret identity which led to his essential destruction. And when they meet like this, they embrace. They haven't seen each other for years. They're both very, very different people who are very damaged in distinct ways, far from the pristine versions we see here in Daredevil Yellow. The time, the literal and figurative distance are now moot. They are drawn to each other and it's like no time has passed for them. No matter what, they come back to one another, somehow attached at the soul. They are ripped apart as a couple, and as individuals, they get stitched back together each and every time. Until now. Now, in terms of the perspective that the modern Daredevil is writing these memoirs, Karen is really gone. 
And there's nothing that can mend this. Not ever again. And here we have Matt remembering Karen as she was. She is pristine. She is an idealized form of herself. She's young. She's alive, both in the literal and figurative sense. And, you know, as I've been speaking about these issues, I've been pondering this idea that Matt is putting himself on trial for Karen's death, as well as Jack's. Basically, blaming himself or exploring the idea that he should maybe blame himself. And with this, it occurred to me just how obvious it is that Matt could not be responsible. You can look at it as Karen and Matt being fated to be together till death do them part. It may not be an ideal relationship. It's certainly not. But it isn't poisonous. It is destined, for lack of a better description. No, they're not perfect for each other. And there would always be some kind of riff complicating them. But they were soulmates, for lack of a better word. And of course, when something ends, it usually leads to the thoughts of the beginning, which is where we find ourselves. To that end, what do we see here? We see Matt finally taking a step forward and inviting himself bowling. The first move is made. Then with the bowling, perhaps the first real connection, as Karen helps guide Matt. And it is the most perfect metaphor for their storied romance. We see the most perfect metaphor on this page. Matt tries on his own, and it ends up in the gutter. Karen helps him, making a physical connection. The connection part is important, because through that connection, they take down one pin. Yeah, the ball ends up in the gutter, but not before a small victory that won't matter in the grand scheme of the game, but means the world to these two. It's an accomplishment. They're never going to be Superman and Lois Lane, or Cyclops and Marvel Girl, or Spider-Man and Mary Jane, the good parts. But to them, the small victories mean everything, and they are, they were, connected on a cosmic level. Or at least deeply psychological level, they are hooked into each other. They are on each other's wavelength. And that's the beauty of this broken, flawed, damaged romance. Yes, it may be scuffed, scratched, dented, bent, dinged, and a little shredded, and a lot cracked, but it's an inescapable connection. And that connection, on whatever level you want to ascribe it, cosmic, faded, simply strong emotions, is what put Karen back in Matt's life. What put her in the path of Bullseye when he threw that billy club. Something bigger than Karen or Matt, or something bigger than their understanding, brought her into this gravitational field of emotions. And that led to her final fate, something beyond Matt's control. But with that, the loss of Karen becomes a lot clearer to me. The impact is huge. And for the first time, I really found myself mourning Karen at the end of this rough and beautiful road. Maybe up to now, I didn't really understand what was actually killed by Bullseye. Now it's crystal, and it makes me want to go back to this happier time, this time of innocence. It's a safe place. And it's not just a person, it's a connection that was snuffed out by Bullseye. So suffice it to say, I understand why Matt wants to come back to the beginning. These are happy memories. These are innocent memories, just like mentioning Electro didn't kill people. And that connection, that loss of connection more accurately, is what makes Daredevil Yellow such a powerful read. Daredevil Yellow is by no means an action piece. It's not heroes and villains. It's almost a romantic comedy. Or almost, in some cases, a romantic drama. It's a catharsis. And it's a catharsis that you or I could go through when we lose somebody. When we lose somebody we're connected to, and that connection is severed, we're going to want to go to our safe place and process it. And I know Jeff Loeb gets a lot of flack, but just this very concept that Matt is going through all these emotions, yes, it's a retelling of the origin in the early days, but the undercurrent of emotions that build the foundation for this, and the simple narrative structure, is a work of genius. Does it always work all the way through the series? No. Is it working here? 
Yes, there's this perfect metaphor on the page that symbolizes exactly what Karen and Matt are. And it's from a vantage point of the end of the road looking back. Now, speaking of the end of the road, I've kind of gone on for a little bit on that. And as far as currents, we should probably look at the last leg of this issue. The day of Slade's execution arrives and Matt decides to attend. He had considered eating pistachio nuts while watching, but decided against it. As Slade is prepped for the electric chair, Matt considers his reasons for coming, whether it was the lawyer in him or the good son wanting to see it through. The switch is thrown and Matt is not prepared for how grotesque the event is, especially the smell which Matt's senses cannot avoid. Afterward, Matt returns to Jack's apartment to think, and later to the offices of Nelson and Murdoch where Foggy drops a bomb on Matt. Foggy brandishes a large diamond ring and announces that he plans to ask Karen Page to marry him. And with that bombshell, the issue ends. So, let's discuss this section and the overall verdict on Daredevil Yellow number 4. In no way, shape, or form do I believe that the transition from the scene at the bowling alley to the scene at the penitentiary is coincidence. This is on pages that face each other and we have this sudden change in mood, a drastic, a kind of uncomfortable change in mood. The bowling alley is happy, filled with a bright, nearly neon yellow as Karen embraces Matt and it's all smiles except for Foggy who's marking down the scores. The prison scene is dark, it's grayscale, and it's cold on a lot of levels, much like last week's visit with Slade. And the text links this. The link is the bowling alley scene ends with the line, when you're young you think you are going to live forever. The thing about Daredevil Yellow, and this is the most blatant example of it, is the idea or the specter of death is kind of hanging over everything. From the decay of the husk that was Fogwell's in the opening of issue 1 to Jack's actual death and the fixer dropping down on the tracks and the scene at the Marlin Cafe, death is almost a character. It's subtle and often hidden in scenes of bright color creating this paradox of emotional reactions. It's kind of spooky to an extent, but the ghosts of Karen and Jack slip by in and out of the story now and again. It occurs to me that Matt, with this telling, has had Jack, Electra, and Karen die in his presence, some of them in his very arms. He has been there for each and heard the death rattle escaping their lungs. He touched their bodies, and that's important to this scene because he had a physical interaction with their remains. For Daredevil, senses are everything everything. It's the key to the character on a lot of levels. And yet, when it comes to Slade, when it comes down to this, there is a glass partition between him and the killer. Yet this death has a different degree and type of trauma to it. Matt sure as hell has no love for Slade. He even wanted to rub it in, guys, and eat pistachio nuts, and yet he couldn't take them out of his pocket because probably because he's a bit of a decent person. The death of Slade marks the demise of a certain level of innocence in Matt. As much as he thought this is what he wanted, in the end, it wasn't. It just leaves Matt hollow. Did Slade deserve this fate? I don't know. Neither does Matt, though. It's certain that Slade deserved to be punished, but the actual experience leaves Matt haunted, especially since the smell is so strong. Matt saw it through to the end, but what he began behind the relative safety of Daredevil's mask is ending here with Matt completely unshielded and, of course, yet ironically behind a shield. This scene makes a lot of sense. Matt is seeing the full repercussions of his actions as Daredevil and the consequences of Slade's choice, just how far a certain ideal can take a person. It's a warning to Matt about those consequences. The law results in Slade's horrific death. Daredevil goes outside the law and becomes basically a tight rope walker. It's essentially the closed fist versus the open palm. One hurts 
and the other offers aid, but a closed fist can be a shelter, and an open palm can still slap a person. Even though Slade's choices and actions resulted in this ending, Matt's own choices from here on in could result in a similar damnation. With this two-page spread of the bowling alley scene and the execution scene, we actually see a bit of a visual cue for salvation and damnation right in front of our faces. While I don't really feel this is subtle, it's it's heavy-handed as hell, actually. Let's not even mince words. I do think it is effective. It's a bit of a sudden drop in mood, which results in a bit of cabin pressure, but it's effective. Despite that change, the actual scene of Slade's execution is phenomenal. There are no speech balloons. Slade is walked down the corridor, the priest is reading him the last rites, and then the money shot, the gray room that holds the empty electric chair, and across this room is a shaft of light from the doorway, and of course the shadow of Slade and his escorts. This is gorgeous. A little bit macabre, a little bit dark, but gorgeous. There is also the shot of the headpiece for the electric chair reflected in Matt's glasses and a close-up of Slade's eyes in the next panel. This is all in stark bluish gray and it plays out like a silent movie with only Matt's inner monologue making it more effective. The final blow, the coup de grace? Slade's agonized shadow cast against the wall where Matt watches. This is easily, easily, hands down the most memorable sequence in the whole series for me. I don't want to love it because of just how macabre it is, but here we are, and the artistry stands out so strongly I can't help but applaud it. To cap this off, we have the image of Matt in Jack's chair. It's the aftermath. It's over really over, and now Matt can only miss his father. This hammers home the idea that I presented last week of a vacuum of sorts in Matt's life, his family, what remained of it, that's gone. There's nothing left. Daredevil fills a certain degree of that void by searching for justice for Jack. There was at least a tangential connection to his father, and now even that's gone. Which means Matt has to redefine things. And that's an important thought process and approach, psychologically. Because what we're looking at is rebuilding an emotional core, and I will submit this emotional core as another potential reason that Matt remains Daredevil after his original mission. Once Slade is gone, the final piece of the Jack Murdoch murder, Matt redefines everything. He reapproaches life, and that includes being Daredevil since it was basically on the board at the time of the redefinition. It was simply an ingredient on the table when Matt repositioned himself for this new, lonelier phase of life. Maybe it isn't a penance or an ego boost or seeking validation. It was just there. Why not? Matt had made the costume and the identity. Why not filter it into his life? He has the capability and the means and a certain lack of familial obligations. Or maybe it's all of the above. It's a perfect storm that positioned Matt into the perfect spot to become a superhero. Remember, there is no definitive answer. All that is definitive is that Matt started being Daredevil to bring the Fixer and Slade to justice and just kept on going. As for Foggy wanting to propose to Karen... Well, Matt and Karen are drawn to one another, so it does render Foggy a bit of a moot point. He's the pebble that trips up the Matt and Karen dynamic, but he was never really going to end up with her, and I think Foggy knew that. Which is one of the sadder aspects of Foggy Nelson, that he lives in Matt's shadow for a long, long time. The dynamic, you know, good-looking guy, he casts a long shadow over this more humble one. The beauty of the tale is that Foggy does break out of Matt's shadow. And really, after becoming district attorney, his legal career goes much further than Matt's does. But like Karen, Foggy is always drawn back into Matt's gravitational pull, and unlike Karen, Foggy never fully pulls away from it. Does Matt weigh Foggy down? Maybe. But Foggy remains at Matt's side willingly. Matt never forces Foggy to stay and will even voluntarily distance himself from Foggy just for Foggy's protection. 
And I guess that kind of begs the question, what is it about Matt that keeps these people in his orbit? And that's precisely where we're going to pick up next week. For now, let's render a final verdict on Daredevil Yellow number four. I'll be honest with you, this installment really struggles with tone, at least on the surface. I will say this, the pacing approached a glacial pace that isn't bad. The tone, however, is a problem. The bulk of the issue is a light, nearly fluffy read. We have the fight with Electro, and then it's a Nora Ephraim movie before shiving us in the kidney with a dark sequence and then back to a rom-com. While I love the bowling scene and the prison scene, especially the prison scene, this mixes like oil and water and it drops the reader down a notch. Grant you, Loeb almost sticks the landing, which is extremely difficult. He almost does it with the scene of Matt mourning in his father's chair, which is a piece of iconography from Daredevil lore, but this shift ends with a dud with the engagement ring. The art, however, never suffers, and Matt Hollingsworth is once again MVP, with the crackling yellows and whites of Matt's fight with Electro and the dark blues and grays for the prison scene. While the shift is a hard one to manage, Hollingsworth appropriately signals the tone and makes it less jarring, which is a nearly impossible task, to be honest with you. And again, the bulk of this issue takes place between the panels, which makes sense. Why would I want an exact duplicate of Daredevil number two? And much of the new material is Matt, Karen, and Foggy in the office. And then a bowling scene after Daredevil defeats Electro, it's all Matt Murdock for the remainder of the issue, which is actually good on one hand. Why is it good? Because we are looking at the core of the character, which is Matt Murdock. The flip side to that is that it also reminds us that in four issues, we have just covered the same time frame, the same material that the original Series 2 did in two issues. Is it decompressed? Yes. Is the focus on the characters? Not really. In fact, this issue suffers from a distinct lack of focus, and it ends up kind of being the weakest link in the overall story. Yes, we have standout scenes. We have the Slade execution scene. Despite the individual scenes, this issue doesn't really know exactly where it wants to go or what it wants to be, and it tries to do it all and just comes up a bit flat for that effort. To summarize it succinctly, this is a great set of individual scenes that just never mesh together. They don't gel, and the issue just falls flat because of it as a whole. But, of course, we have another issue next week. That's right, next week. Daredevil takes on the owl with Karen's life in the balance and a subplot totally fizzles out in Daredevil Yellow number 5. That is in one week. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. You can find the show's home at twotruefreaks.com. Also, choose to like the network on Facebook. Simply search for Two True Freaks. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder. And you can email the show. The address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and keep the lights on at 2 True Freaks at the same time. What a deal. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment Group, all rights reserved. 
This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not draw profit from the references to the characters herein. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes. All rights lie with the copyright holder. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a production of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.